Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be back here worshiping with you guys. We missed you last weekend. Although I won't lie, Hilton Head was pretty nice. <laughs> we enjoyed the weather and had some good time with my family, just getting some rest and relaxation. We actually have a photo here of us right before we went on a pirate cruise. Uh, the girls defeated Stinky Pete, the, the bad pirate. Uh, and it was just a lot, a lot of fun, good time had by all. So um, if you're new here, welcome. Glad to have you with us this morning. My name is Nick Lees, and I serve as a senior pastor here at the church. And I have the privilege of opening up God's word with you today. And actually today is a very interesting day to be visiting us for a couple of reasons. The first one is that right after this service, we're having our family chat. So right here in this room at 1230, uh, we have a meeting about once a quarter where we get the church family together to talk about who we are, what God is doing in our midst, and how he wants to use you to accomplish his mission here through Harvest. And so we'd love to have you stick around after this service and be a part of the family chat whether you're a member here or not, this is open to anyone. If you want to come and just learn more about what our church is about, I'm excited to talk about some, some exciting things. New members joining the church, a strategic plan we're getting ready to launch this summer. There's just some really good stuff to be a part of. So 1230 here, you can go grab a bite to eat, bring your kids in here. Um, it's just a free-for-all. So we'll have fun together, and it lasts about an hour. Second reason that this is an interesting day to join us is because the text that we're about to study is routinely described as one of the hardest passages in the New Testament to interpret and understand. Woo! We got our work, got our work cut out for us today. So, if you're one of those people who actually looks at the bottom of the bulletin each week and says, "Oh, here's what I need to read for next week," if you were reading ahead, you know, through this week trying to get ready for today, and you were like, "What in the world?" That's okay. You're in good company. Uh, we're going to wrestle through the text this morning. Um, even though it's a bit hard to understand, there are some really good uh, truths that we're going to glean from this that Paul is going to teach the Corinthians that we're going to apply to our lives, and we'll just have to work through it together. But maybe you're here and you would say, well, wait, why? if it's hard, why not just skip it? Why not just go to the next thing, right? I mean, tackle the things that are easy to understand. And, and we would say, no, 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 because we believe that this is God's word, right? This is front to back the entirety of Scripture, and we want to know what it says, even the hard things, and perhaps we would say especially the hard things. And so I want to encourage you to, not only on Sundays, go through the Bible verse by verse, but in your personal walk with the Lord, to make it a habit to study the Scripture systematically, where you're taking it book by book, verse by verse, allowing the Lord to teach you, not getting in the habit of saying, well, that's hard or that's boring, I'll just skip over it. I found, and similar to what Jack prayed for us, that it's helpful to, to spend some time in prayer before I go to the Word and just ask God, God, would you please help me? Prepare my heart for what you have for me today. Teach me through your Word. Holy Spirit, please allow me to understand and apply this to me. So I would just encourage you uh, to be praying that for yourself even in this moment. See, on Sundays we're here going through a verse-by-verse -verse study through Paul's letter of 1 Corinthians. And what comes next is what we're going to study and there are some important lessons to learn from, from what we're going to study today. And as I was preparing for the sermon today, I found something kind of interesting. What I saw was that both folks who would be extremely liberal and folks that are extremely conservative have taken this passage and they use it like a club or like a weapon to force their views on others. Well, that's not how I desire for us to approach it today. And so as we come to this passage, I want us to come asking questions, right? Why did God put it in his word? What is Paul trying to teach? And then how do I need to personally apply it and change as a result of it? Right, that's what we need to be coming to the text with this morning. And just so we know, right? So we're on the level with one another. We all have 
preconceived notions and biases, right? You've all been influenced by culture. I've been influenced by culture. So it's very hard for us to come to a passage not already bringing our influences and our biases to it. And so um, as much as you can, I want to encourage you also under your breath just to say, Lord, please help me. Please help me to read this as if I'm reading it for the very first time. And please help me to learn what you have for me today. Well, I'm going to have our ushers come forward with the Bibles right now. If you're here and you need a copy of the Word of God to read, just throw your hand in the air, and they'll gladly give you a Bible. You know, one of the things we want people to do is be able to read the text together as we study it. And so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to the New Testament. That's the back half of the Bible, to the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's going to be page 820 of the Bible that they're handing out to you right now. And if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to keep that one as a gift from us to you, as a thank you for being here this morning. I've got a lot of them. Mike, one over here too. There we go. Awesome. And before we step into this passage, so you're going to kind of keep your finger there, there's a question I want you to think through with me this morning. The question is this, what is the goal of worship? What is the goal of worship? And before you can answer that question, we need to define the term. What is worship? So our church's definition for worship is this. Worship is our response to who God is and the act of ascribing worth to Him. So worship is our response to who God is, and it's the act of ascribing worth to Him. Let's kind of step through that for a minute, break this down. The first thing we see is that worship is a response. It's your response. It's my response. That means that something precedes worship. And in this case, it's someone. It's God, the creator of all things, the creator of you and I, the one who sent his son, Jesus, to die so that you could be rescued and redeemed. He's the one that we're responding to. And your worship is your response to who God is. Second, worship is a specific type of response. Right? It says here that the act is of ascribing or attributing worth to God. So it's not that we're adding worth to God. He's already fully worthy. We're just declaring how worthy he truly is. We're trying to show that to the world around us. And that, that act of ascribing worth to him is something you do every day. Right? In fact, every moment of every day, in the way that you speak, in the way that you think, in the way that you act. Right? So how you came in this morning what you'll do this afternoon and evening, those communicate something about your view of God. They are acts of worship, and they will either ascribe worth to God or they will not. Something to think about. This is not just limited to our corporate time together here on Sundays. So as you think through that, what is the goal of worship? The goal of worship is to declare how great and how mighty and how worthy our God truly is in a way that pleases and glorifies him. Both of those components are very important. The goal of worship is to declare how great and mighty and worthy our God truly is in a way that pleases and glorifies him. Because it is possible to try to worship in a way that's not pleasing and not glorifying to God. And if you've been here long enough, you know that one of the six pillars of our church is passionate worship. We believe in worshiping God with our whole being. We want to engage our hearts, our inner man, and we also want to engage our mind. With all that we have, we want to worship our God. Because that's what Jesus commands us to do. But if you answer this question differently, it may lead to some different results. It may change the way that you interact with God 
Let's say you say the goal of worship is human-centered. It's that I would feel good. It's that I would be built up. It's that I would be encouraged. And those aren't necessarily bad things, but those aren't the main thing. Those are byproducts of worship. Those are not the goal of worship. It's not about me, and it's not about you. That turns the experience inwards instead of upwards on God and on pleasing him. And unfortunately, we see that happen too often in churches around our world. There are also incorrect forms of worship that actually invite the displeasure and even discipline of our God. We saw that two weeks ago, if you're here with us, when we went back to the Old Testament and we saw that the Israelites had Aaron form the golden calf in the desert. Right? They thought that they were worshiping God in a way that was pleasing to him. And it turns out, no, that was not pleasing to him. And they were disciplined because of it. And then next week, when we get into the latter half of chapter 11, we're going to see how even the Corinthians, they abused the Lord's table, and they weren't worshiping God the way that he desired. And there were consequences for them as well. We don't want to repeat their examples. Well, the reason why I'm bringing all this up today is because this is what's happening in Corinth. Right? Paul has written a lot in his letter by this point. A lot of it deals with the issue of worship. Who are they declaring God is? How are they responding to God? And what we've seen is that he confronts them over and over again for responding poorly to who God is. They respond poorly to what God has done in and for them. And so Paul repeatedly encourages them. He says, look, you need to lay down your freedoms. You need to lay down your rights. It's not about you. It's about loving God and loving others. And that's the message that he's been consistent with throughout the letter. And each of those issues that he's addressed are worship issues. And their choices reveal what they believe about God. And last week, if you were here, when Pastor Mark opened up the scriptures, we got to hear the kind of summary, the culmination of, of what we're called to do. And this has been the theme verse for this series in 1 Corinthians 10.31, which Paul wrote, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So for the Corinthians, in all that they do, no matter how mundane, no matter how normal it is in their day-to-day life, they're to do it in a way that ascribes worth to God. And the same is true for you and me. No matter how mundane, no matter how normal your activities are from day to day, are you doing it in a way that ascribes worth to God? Is it a response to who he is? Maybe you think, well, what would that look like? How do I know if I'm doing that or not? I'll think back over this last week. Right? Think about some of the interactions you have with other humans, the way that you communicated with them. Did you seek to glorify God in the way that you spoke to your coworkers? Did you seek to glorify God in the words that you used with your spouse? Parents with kids, did you speak to your kids in a God-glorifying way this week? Or how about this? Did you glorify God in your thought life? Right? Or were you struggling with lust, worry, control, sinful anger? You name it. Did you glorify God in your response to authority? Those are ways that are very practical to our lives that reveal whether we are worshiping our God or worshiping something else. And I don't know about you, but my last week I was stuck in a hotel room with five women, four of which are seven and under. Sorry, ladies. But that'll, that'll bring some things out of you. It'll reveal what you're worshiping. And suffice it to say, there were times where I wasn't worshiping the Lord. I needed to repent. And I imagine the same is true for you this last week, whether it was different circumstances or not. But these are the types of issues that are at stake, and they are worship issues. They are important. They matter. They're relevant. 
So what we're doing today is we're seeking to learn how to glorify God as men and women in the church. So let's get to the text now and study it together. And I just want to warn you, if you're someone who's, you know, always anticipating when's the blank coming, when's the blank coming, it's going to be a while. So just hold your horses. We'll get to the blanks, I promise. They're not coming anytime soon. All right, let's look at 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2. Here's what Paul writes. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Let's just pause there for a second. If you've been with us for most of the series, you might be a little caught off guard by those words. I commend you. Paul has not done a whole lot of commending of the Corinthians throughout this letter. In fact, most of the letter has been him confronting them. And so this kind of grabs your attention. It's like, wait a minute, what have they done that's right? And frankly, uh, we don't know a lot because he doesn't continue on, the con- on with this. He actually then sets up the next three chapters of, and here are some other ways you need to grow and change. And so uh, this is kind of a transition for Paul, and he's, he's encouraging them for some things that they're doing right, but at the same time, there's still plenty more that they need to grow in. There's still plenty more that they need to change. And so what we're going to see over the next several chapters is there's a lot of work to be done. Let's keep reading now in, verses, in verse 3 through 16. Paul continues, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, if you read that passage and you thought, huh? <laughs> That's okay. You're in good company. This is a, this is a toughie. Um, but our goal is to unpack it together and work through it together. And so in the time we have remaining, we want to unpack three key truths for glorifying God in the church. And our first truth is actually going to come back from the very beginning here at verse 3. So go ahead and look again at verse 3. Let's remind ourselves of what it said. Paul wrote, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So the principle that's being unpacked here by the Apostle Paul is that every one of us operates under authority. We are all under authority. That's what he means by the term head in this verse. It's a metaphor for leadership or authority. And that's the way that Paul uses the term when he talks about Christ being the head of the church. We heard about that when we read through Ephesians earlier in the year. He says that in Ephesians 5 when he talks about husbands being head over their wives as well. And so what I want to do is actually want to start with the last of these three examples first. 
the head of Christ is God. What does that mean? Right? Christ is the Son of God, and what this is teaching us is that he is functionally subordinate to God the Father. This is known as the economic trinity. And what that means is that, yes, the Godhead is co-eternal and co-equal as persons and deity, yet they have distinct roles. The way that they live out their roles is different. And so when I say functionally subordinate, I'm not saying that they're different in nature. God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit are all equally God. But what I do say here is that subordination is in role and the way that they function, the way that they live those out. And if you were to do a brief study through the scriptures, especially the gospels, you would see that the Father sends the Son. The Son came down from heaven not to do his own human will, but the will of the Father. The Father gave the Son to perform the work of redemption. And the Father and the Son both send the Holy Spirit. And so within the triune relationship of the Godhead, there is a voluntary subordination of authority. The Son voluntarily submits to the Father's authority. And so as we think through this, as we think about being under authority, this particular point, we see it even within the Godhead, authority and submission is a good thing. It's not a bad thing as our culture often paints it. Functioning under authority is not a bad thing. Well, let's go back to the first example now. The head of every man is Christ. What that means, gentlemen, is that every single one of us is under the authority of King Jesus. Right? No one is exempt from being under his rule and reign. So men, we're called to submit to Christ. And I would posit to you this morning that when men submit to Christ and his rule and reign in their lives, that's when the church, that's when families, that's when society as a whole is built up and edified. And you don't have to look far to see dysfunctional men who are subverting their authorities being the cause of many problems and many issues in our world. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 3, you'll see our forefather, Adam, starting this path. See, due to his failure to obey God, he invited sin into this world. And that leads to where we are today, the state of dysfunction that we find ourselves in. And it's consistent throughout history, whether you're reading through the Bible and you're looking at the examples of men there, or whether you expand your horizons to look at world history. I mean, think about this week even. This week was the 50th anniversary of D-Day, right? A horrific day that was necessary because some men in Germany were subverting and, and not willing to submit to the authority of Christ in their lives. They didn't want his rule and reign, and so they began a tirade across Europe. What about even closer to home? Within our city, there are many families, many homes where the father is absent or where the father is abusive, or perhaps overly passive, right? There's a lot of different words you could use there. What I'm trying to point out is it's far too rare where there's actually a man in the home that is living under the authority of Christ that he is called to submit to and fulfilling his role as a godly man. And given where we are in the calendar of the year, right, we're a week out from Father's Day, I do want to make sure we say thank you to the men that are willing to submit, that are obeying God's call on their life, that are seeking to live under authority and seeking to serve others humbly. Praise God for you. Keep it up. Don't grow weary in doing good. That is a way that you can function under authority and worship God well. Right? Keep doing that. 
So for us men here this morning, key takeaway is that there's no such thing as an independent man or an independent woman. It's a lie from the devil if we think it's better for us to be outside of authority. If we think, oh, I'm better off if I just, I'm my own boss. No one tells me what to do. I don't, I'll call the shots in my life. That's a lie. And we need to, we need to reject that. It's good for you and for me to submit to Christ and to the other appropriate authorities in our lives. Now, the third example from verse 3 is going to be worded a little differently depending on what Bible translation you're using. So here at our church, we read from the ESV. And there's two words here. There's the word aner and the word gune. Aner can be translated man or husband, and gune can be translated woman or wife. And for those of you who have the ESV this morning, you may have noticed that in most of the verses, if you kind of just do a quick skim over of 2 through 16, it's translated man. But in verse 3, you'll see this one time it says husband. And then there are six times where it says wife, and then ten times where it says woman. Those are the same words, just translated differently each time. And the reason that the ESV does that is because they're saying that specific passages are applying to the context of marriage. And, you know, for example, if you look at the entirety of Scripture, we know that all women are not called to submit to all men. That's, that's not consistent with Scripture. Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 would show us that a wife is under the authority of her own husband, not every man. And I, I just want to, you know, while we're kind of hitting some things that are controversial in our society, give a caveat here. If, if the idea of authority and submission, you know, grates against your soul and is really hard to hear, I want to encourage you that the authority we're talking about is the authority that Christ had and the leadership that Christ demonstrated, which was a servant leadership, which was laying down his life for the good of others, namely his bride, the church. And that's the example that men are called to emulate. And if you weren't here earlier in the year when we went through Ephesians, I would encourage you to go back. On January 20th, we had a a study through Ephesians 5 about transformed marriages. And that's a a sermon series where we unpacked the roles of husband and wife a little more thoroughly than we have time to today. So if this is something that you're wrestling with, go back and and listen to that. Point being, in in this scripture we're studying today, you could translate the words man, husband, woman, wife, um, I personally believe that the woman-wife translation is a little bit more to be preferred um, because although, yes, it's talking about some husband-wife stuff, we know that when Paul wrote his letter to Corinth, he was writing to people who would have been married and single, people who had never been married or people that had been widowed. And so I do think you limit the, the application a bit when you say wife-husband rather than just using man and woman throughout. At the end of the day, here's our point. And this is finally we're getting to the blank for those of you who've been waiting. We are all under authority, so you must function as a man or a woman under authority, right? If that's the reality that we are under authority, then we have to live that way, and that's the first key truth to glorifying God in the church, and what we see in this this text is the challenge is people in Corinth, they weren't doing so hot at this. Look again with me at verses four and five. Paul points out, it says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, in their culture, men did not need to cover their heads in worship. That was not something that the Jews or the Christians needed to do, because doing so dishonored Christ. 
But what we see is that the Christian women were encouraged to continue wearing their head coverings when they were assembled for worship so that they would not bring dishonor on the men who were present. For us as modern readers, that tends to be pretty confusing. It's like, what is this about? Right, in our day and age, in the American church specifically, head coverings don't communicate a message one way or another. But if you were to go back in the first century, especially Roman culture, which that's what the city of Corinth would have been steeped in, Head coverings were a normal part of a lady's wardrobe, and they did communicate a message. If you had no head covering on, you were out in public, that communicated that you were promiscuous. That communicated that you were shirking your husband's leadership. So it would have been a big deal for a lady to come into worship, come into the public setting with no head covering on. And along the same lines, for a man to wear a head covering would communicate the wrong message about what God he worshipped. So back then, there were many pagan religions, and many of them had the men covering their heads during worship services. And so for a Christian man to bring a head covering into the service of a Christian church, it would have sent a mixed signal, a mixed message about who he served and who he worshipped. And so at the end of the day, the overarching principle for us is that Christian men and women need to function under authority. We need to give honor to our authorities. And I do want to note this, because I know this, again, can be interpreted a lot of ways in our modern day and age, and it does get wielded as a sword or as a club. First century Christianity, when, when it first got started, was a huge proponent of women's rights. Because in many days, or many places in first century culture, women were treated as subordinate or lesser. So if you had went to the Jewish synagogue, for example, the men would have worshipped in one area, and the ladies would have been relegated to another area. They weren't allowed to join for the public worship service. If you went into the secular areas of society, you would have seen uh, men being encouraged to be polygamous, having wives, concubines, mistresses, right? all sorts of things that devalued the ladies. But in contrast, Christianity affirmed the equal value and dignity of men and women. Both are created in God's image. As we see here, the, the Christian churches, they welcomed women in the public worship service. They were allowed to be a part of that. So there were some major freedoms being given back that had been taken for a long time. And in the midst of that, as they were being given these freedoms back, what we see is that it was possibly tempting for some to just say, well, I'll take the head covering off too. If these things are changing, I'll just change that as well. Unfortunately, that was a problem because that dishonored their authority. For the wives, it would have dishonored their husbands. And for the single ladies, it would have dishonored the men in the church because it would have been distracting from worship, sending mixed messages. And the same, again, is true if a man were to cover his head. It would have dishonored Christ and communicated a mixed message. It's just not the way that you were expected to worship. And if you take nothing else away from this, this part of the sermon, I just want you to hear this, right? Each one of us is under authority, and so don't go around saying that you're your own boss, that you call the shots in your life. If you know people who are, who are like that, be cautious around them. Possibly need to think about your relationships with them because that's a dangerous individual. God says that you are under authority. We all are. And it's far better for us to say yes, and that's a good thing, and enjoy the peace that comes when we function under authority. Amen. This should, be, this should be hitting you hard from the men in the, in the congregation. 
right? If you're in a position of authority, if you're called to be a leader, what kind of leadership are you exercising? How are you leading those who are under your authority? It starts first and foremost by you submitting to your authority, which is Christ. So are you submitting to Christ in your life? Submitting to Christ means there's no room to be lazy or passive as a man. Submitting to Christ means there's no room to go the other direction either, to be overly aggressive or even abusive in your leadership. It does not honor the Lord. Those qualities are at odds with being a Christian man. Again, we go back and we look to Christ's example, right? The one who laid down his life for the good of others. The one who sought to build up those who were under his care. It's so the question for you to ask yourself this morning, men, is how are you seeking to sacrifice for the good of others? Is there evidence that you're using your position to benefit those who are under your care? Or do you use your role for your own selfish gain? Now, that's a big difference. We're called to use our leadership to serve and to build up those who are under our care. That's what it means to be a godly man. For the ladies who are here this morning, our culture does not understand how submission and equality can go hand in hand. That is a, a message that's been done tremendous damage by the feminist movement. And whether you realize it or not, you've likely been influenced by that teaching and that ideology. And again, if it's grating against your soul to hear, oh, I'm supposed to submit to authority, if you're a wife, you're called to submit to your husband, that's probably because you've been shaped and influenced by our culture. And I want to point you back to verses 8 and 9 and verses 11 and 12. Let's go look at those again. Paul wrote, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. So what Paul does is he goes back to the very beginning. He goes back to the creation account and appeals to the created order, the way God has made things. God made man first, and then from man he created the woman. That's the created order. And she was made as a helper fit for him. She was a companion that completed the man, meaning he wasn't whole, he wasn't complete without her. And now we see in the Lord, they are dependent on one another. Men are born of women, that's basic biology, we know that. And ultimately we are all under the authority of God. And so there's an equality in being a man and a woman, they're equal, equal in role, equal in, equal in worth and value, but distinct as a man and as a woman, and how they live out their roles. And these passages that we just read tie into the earlier ones that show that authority and submission, they're not bad things. They're actually very good things. They're woven into the fabric of God's creation and his design for us. And done well, they become a very beautiful thing. Right? When men are leading as servant leaders, when they're seeking to build up those who are under their care, that's a beautiful thing. When ladies are coming alongside, using their gifts and their abilities to help and to fulfill and to complete, to see that all within their influence be blessed, that's a beautiful thing. What we see is that it's ultimately not about us. It's all about worshiping our God. 
And unfortunately for the Corinthians, that's, what, that's where their struggle was. They were struggling to worship the Lord, to keep the focus on him. Right? There were men and women in their congregation who were just flaunting their freedoms and saying, well, I'm going to do what I want because it serves me and I like it. And Paul is continuing to say, that's not how you're to live. You're a distraction from the goal of worship, which is to worship God. And that's why he calls attention to the head covering issues. And this is going to bring us to our second key truth of how do we glorify God as men and women in the church? You have to understand that there is propriety in worship. Understand that there's propriety in worship. And I know that's like a, a million-dollar word. It's not one we use a whole lot. And so let's define the term. What does propriety mean? Propriety means correctness concerning standards of behavior or morals. Correctness concerning standards of behavior or morals. What Paul is teaching this church is that there is a right way and there is a wrong way to worship God. And you need to know the difference because it matters. And he's already pointed out some of these, right? They're linked to the culture at that time, the head covering issues. Again, those aren't present in our, our American church today, but there are plenty of ways that these things apply for us today. So what does this mean for you and I? Well, you need to be aware of the propriety of the culture that you're in. So let's say you were in the Middle East worshiping the Lord. Ladies, you would still want to be wearing your head covering because to not have a head covering in the Middle East, that connotates some things that you do not want to declare. Here in America, that's not a big deal. So what kind of things do we need to be aware of? Well, propriety here and worship means you need to be concerned about not distracting from the worship of God. So that might mean that you, you make sure that the clothing that you wear or the behavior that you conduct yourselves in during a worship service is not going to distract from God. It goes for both men and women. I'm not speaking to just one group here. And so if you came in this morning and you didn't have adequate clothing on or you were dressed immodestly, that would be disrupting the propriety of worship, right? That would be drawing attention to self rather than to the Lord. Or if you came in and I'm just thinking about the culture of our church, if you were dancing all around through the rows and up the aisles during the worship set, that would be disrupting the propriety of our particular church because that's just not how we do things here. Or if you're wearing clothes with curse words or anti-Christian propaganda, etc., you get the idea, right? Those kind of things disrupt. Those kind of things distract from who we're here to worship. We're here to worship God. Now, for men and women in Paul's day, right, it was about the head coverings and it was about their hairstyles. So, I've already hit the head coverings, but what is he talking about with the hairstyles? Well, back then, if men had long hair... It was generally a disgrace to them. It was a blurring of gender lines. It was meaning they were effeminate. Now, it wasn't true across the board, right? Because we know there was the Nazarite vow for the Jews and things like that. But for the majority, long hair for men was sending the wrong message. And the same would have been true for a lady who shaved or cut her hair short. These people were seen as going against God's created order. They were saying, I don't like that I'm a man or I don't like that I'm a woman. And that's not a message that God wants us to communicate. God wants us to communicate the goodness of how God made me. It's good to be a man. And if you're a lady, it's good to be a lady. And so there were culturally ways that they ought to fulfill that and not bring dishonor or disgrace on them and on their own authorities. Again, what these people were communicating by their actions were, it's all about me. It's all about what I want. I call the shots in my life. I don't submit to others. So again, as you think through, okay, 
What am I supposed to take away for today? How does this apply to me as an American in the 21st century? Well, again, are you sensitive to what blurs gender lines in our day and age? Right? Again, length of hair, typically not an issue in America for blurring gender lines. That may be in the past, but not so much anymore. But there are other things that would. Right, men, if we come in here wearing nail polish and makeup, that's going to send some really bad mixed messages, right? If we come in in dresses and high heels, that's blurring the gender lines. That's effeminate. And likewise, ladies, if you came in dressed very manly and in ways that diminish your femininity, that would be a problem, right? Because in those, in those practices, we're not declaring what God declares, that it's good to be a man or it's good to be a woman the way that he's made us. These things go against the created order, so we ought not to do it. Now, I do want to make a clarifying statement because I know that this could be uh, a bit confusing for some. I'm not talking to someone who may be here who is a visitor or not a member of our church, right? If they came in through our doors and, and for whatever reason were dressed in a way that would be considered immodest or uh, maybe wearing some of those shirts that we talked about earlier, it's like, my goal is not to tell them this passage. My goal is to, to meet them where they're at to know their story, and to introduce them to Christ and his story and show them the hope that they have in Jesus, right? And so if you're here this morning and you would say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not a Christian and frankly, I'm wondering what in the world you guys are talking about right now, um, this teaching is not for you, to be quite honest. This teaching is written to a, a church of, of followers of Jesus Christ and the expectation for them because they said, yes, I am a Christian, I follow Jesus, the, the expectation is that they would live like it, that they would obey his authority, but that's not applicable to you. So rather, what I would encourage you to be thinking about, if you're here and you don't know Christ, if you don't claim to follow him, is what do you do with God? Right? If he is the creator of all things, including you, and if he really did send his son to die on the cross for your sins so that you could have the hope of rescue and redemption so that you could be made right with God, then what? What will you do with that? That's the most important thing for you to consider. And I do believe that the evidence for these things is overwhelming. That God exists, that he sent his son, that Jesus went to the cross, he lived a perfect sinless life, and then he died for you and for me. And three days later, he conquered the grave, having victory over sin and death. He makes it possible for you and I to be forgiven if we would place our faith and trust in him. So what do you do with that? My hope is that you're in a spot where you say, well, I've tried things my way. I've, I've tried the whole, I'm my own boss, and I call the shots in my life, and it didn't go so well. Right? I've, I've had enough of that pain and that suffering, that life that had no real purpose or meaning. And now I want to know, what does, it ha- what does it mean to have new life? What does it mean to have hope and to have faith in Christ? I want a restored relationship with God. I want to know my creator. If that's where you're at, I would love to chat with you after the service. Let's talk through that. Let's work through that because you can have hope. You can have confidence that we're talking about this morning. Where does that, where does that leave us here with this, with this passage? I think something that you need to think about is the longer that you're in church, especially assuming you're a Christian, the more worship needs to be about God and less about you, right? So whatever it is that may be distracting, or causing the attention to turn to you, you forsake that, you put it off, and you make it about God and about Him. And that's our final key truth for this morning. Realize that worshiping God is not about you. Worshiping God is not about you. 
And the bottom line of what we've been learning in you know, 1 Corinthians is those freedoms, those rights that you've been given, they're not so that you can serve yourself or, or make much of you. They're all about serving God and serving others. And that has been the perpetual struggle of the Corinthians. And if we're honest, that is a common theme for us as well. We struggle with these things. So when Paul calls them to, to operate in a way that loves God and love others, you might as well hear him talking to you and to me too. That's what we're called to do. Live in a way that loves God and love, loves others. And Paul even said last week, his goal, his aim, was to be all things to all people, right? Not for his own gain, but to please others and seek their gain that they may be saved. He wanted to be able to share the gospel with as many people as possible. So what is your goal when you come here on a Sunday morning? What are you here for? Do you come thinking about how you can love God and love others? Right? Or are you thinking about how you can get what you need out of a worship set and out of the message? Are you excited to bless those around you? Do you come expectantly seeking to you know, offer a word of encouragement, a word of life to a brother or sister in Christ? Or are you coming hoping that those will be what's given to you? Let me share a few examples of how this might play out on a Sunday morning. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of your day where you're standing in your closet or in front of your dresser and you're trying to figure out, what am I going to wear today? Right, what does it look like to love God and love others in the middle of that decision? Well, do you ever think, will this outfit distract from the worship of God? Will this outfit draw attention to me rather than to my creator? And if the answer is yes, then maybe I shouldn't wear it. Whether it's dressing uh, overdressing or underdressing, whether it's dressing immodestly or, or too ornately, right? There's a lot of ways that could play out. But do you ever stop to think about how does what you wear affect those around you when you're here on a Sunday or, frankly, any other day of the week? Or how about this? How about your actions during worship? Do you ever spend time thinking about, am I distracting the people around me from their worship of God? Again, your actions could be authentic and a response to God and praise Jesus for that. Good. But if your heart's desire is, I hope people notice, look at me, like, aren't I engaged? That's the wrong motivation. That's the wrong desire. And we need to change that. Now how about you're in the car and you're on your way over. Are you preparing yourself or anyone else who's in the vehicle with you for the, the worship set? Are you preparing to love others when you get here? Perhaps that means you're going to take some time to get right with the Lord. Maybe you know it's been a rough week. There have been some things that were said and done that didn't please Jesus, and I need to confess it, and I need to ask forgiveness. Are you doing that to make sure you're coming here with a clean heart, ready to worship? Are you, if you're traveling with others, maybe you have kids, maybe you have other family members or friends in the car with you, are you encouraging them to think about, hey, when we get to church, who are you looking forward to meet? Right? Who are you going to get to know? Who's someone new that you're going to look for? And then, of course, you wouldn't just apply that standard to them, right? You would ask the same question of yourself. I mean, think about what that would do if our church was thinking this way. If all of us had that mentality, when we came together, it would be a lot of fun. It would be hard to be a stranger. You would feel loved, right? That's the compelling community that we're talking about. Are we seeking to do that? Is that where our focus is? Or what about when you get to the worship time? You know, Nick and Avery or Caleb or whoever it is is leading us in worship. Are you engaged or are you disconnected? 
Right? Are, you, are you singing praises to the Lord? Are you responding to who God is from your heart? Singing those truths not only to him, but also to one another? Or are you just kind of checked out blankly? I realize that corporate worship is corporate. So not only are you singing praises to God, you're singing them to one another. You're encouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ with the very same truths that you're responding to God with. And that's a powerful thing. That means we ought to be united in that, sharing that worship together. And so what you do during the worship set or in the study of the word matters, right? Just like as we're studying the word right now, taking notes or, or taking time to read the scriptures, that teaches the people around you. That encourages the people around you. Oh, that person's, you know, they're writing notes about this. I, I probably ought to do that too. I ought to interact with what God has for me in this passage. And again, doing this shows that you know the importance of worshiping God and loving others rather than just focusing on yourself. And I believe that if each one of us commits to that kind of a heart attitude and behavior, that will glorify God and it will build the church up that we'll be edified and encouraged. And that's what we see Paul seeking to do with the Corinthian church. That's the path he's trying to set them on. That's the path I want to set our church on. So Christian, your aim when you come here is to identify what will please God, bring glory to him, and then to do that. Right? It's about him, not about you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, We just come before you this morning and we confess that we get this wrong a lot of times. Lord, that we make worship about us rather than about you. And we forget that it's not just on Sundays, but it's every day and every moment of every day that how we live, how we speak, how we think matters. It communicates a message about what we believe about you. And so we just come before you this morning. And I know I personally over the last seven days have had plenty of opportunities where my worship was in the wrong place. And I just confess that to you, Lord. And I pray for your help in changing that. That I would lay down the things that are selfish instead of focused on you. And I pray for each one who is here this morning that they would also consider and reflect on the ways that they need to reorient their worship. That they would confess, that they would ask forgiveness, that they would get right with you. Lord, may we not make it about us. It's all about you. May we understand the propriety of the worship and not distract others from worshiping you. May we encourage and build each other up. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you. Thank you for the freedoms that we have to worship you. May we do that boldly. May we do that without distraction. God, I pray that you would help us in this matter. In Jesus' name I pray.